This is a recording of Asymmetry in Chiasms, with a note about Deuteronomy 8 and Alma 36, read by Stephen Kent Ehat. Abstract. Some students of the Book of Mormon have claimed that chapter 36 of the Book of Alma is structured as a chiasm. Some of the proposals depart from perfect symmetry, presenting elements of the suggested chiasm seemingly out of sequence. This has often been pointed to as a weakness in the proposed chiasm, or as a problem arising from translation or editorial work, or even as evidence that no real chiasm exists over the text of the chapter. Perhaps, however, asymmetry may be a deliberate feature of ancient chiasmus. Understanding the presence and role of occasional asymmetry, or skews as they are called, may help us better appreciate the rhetorical tools employed in crafting chiastic texts anciently. In particular, we can see that the structure of Alma 36 may well be a beautifully crafted chiasmus featuring what may be an intentional skew, similar to those that scholars have identified elsewhere in Scripture. One such other chiastic text with a skew in it appears to be Deuteronomy chapter 8. Indeed, one skew proposed in Alma 36 together with conceptual and other structural characteristics of the text, including the proposed chiasm of the text, perhaps suggests that some of the message and structure of Deuteronomy 8 may have served as a model for part of the message and structure of Alma 36. End of abstract. As an editorial comment added to the oral recording of this paper, I note that rather than reading extensive chiastic passages from beginning to end, I here will compare the first element with the last element, the second element with the second to last element, and on to the middle. Anciently, listeners were attuned to the correspondences when spoken, but in our day, not being trained in listening to chiastic texts, we have developed written formats to help portray the elements of a chiasm with indented left margins in English, indented right margins in Hebrew, and letters of the alphabet or numbers to help identify corresponding elements of a chiasm. Many analysts have proposed that numerous lengthy scriptural texts are chiastic. The analysts often use indented lines, underlining, enhanced fonts, and numbers or letters to depict identified words, phrases, or ideas in the first half of a lengthy text and show how they are repeated generally in mirror image reversed sequence in the second half of the text. Chiasms may have one central element, such as A, B, C, D, E, D, C, B, A, or two, such as A, B, C, D, E, E, DCBA. A proposed mirror image chiasm over the 21 verses of the text of Psalm 71 is an example. A. Prayer for deliverance. B. Quote, From my youth you are my God. End quote. C. Quote, my mouth shall be filled. End quote. D. Prayer against enemies of quote, my soul. End quote. E. Quote, O God, be near, end quote. E prime, quote, O God, help, end quote. D prime, prayer against adversaries of, quote, my soul, end quote. C prime, quote, my mouth shall tell, end quote. B prime, 
Quote, From my youth I am yours. End quote. A prime praise for deliverance. Sometimes, however, analysts identify chiastic structures for texts where the sequence of repeated elements in the second half of the text departs from perfect mirror symmetry. One example would be an ABCDDBCA chiasm, where the repeated elements B prime and C prime in the second half of the text revert to direct parallelism with the B and C elements of the first half. Another example would be an ABCDCDBA structure of the eight verses of the text of Psalm 114, as observed by Niels W. Lund. A. When Israel went forth out of Egypt, the house of Jacob, from a people of strange speech. B. Judah became his sanctuary, Israel his dominion. C. The sea saw it and fled. The Jordan turned back. D. The mountains skipped like rams, the little hills like lambs. C prime. What aileth thee, O sea, that thou fleest, thou Jordan, that thou turnest back? D prime. Ye mountains, that ye skip like rams, ye hills like lambs. B prime. At the presence of Adon, tremble, thou earth, at the presence of the God of Jacob. A prime, who turneth the rock into a pool of waters, the flint into a fountain of waters. This reversion to direct parallelism is called a skew, a departure from the expected structure of an ideal chiasmus, as discussed below. Other lengthy texts proposed to be chiastic some of them with a skew and some without, are Exodus chapter 14, verses 4 to 31, Leviticus chapter 24, verses 13 to 23, Deuteronomy chapter 8, verses 1 to 20, Isaiah chapter 41, verses 1 to 20, James chapter 1, verse 1, through chapter 5, verse 20, and Luke's travel narrative, Luke chapter 9, verse 51, through chapter 19, verse 27. These will be briefly mentioned in this paper. Often the proposals show mirror symmetry, a perfect reversal. Often they do not, producing asymmetry. Alma chapter 36 verses 1 to 30 is one such lengthy text that analysts have proposed is chiastic with a skew in it. The scope of this present article does not include seeking to establish that Alma 36 is chiastic. Rather, we accept the conclusions of prior analysts that the text is chiastic, and here focus instead on the role and significance of skews. This paper first will discuss what a skew is, and what generally is said about skews in ancient chiastic texts. The paper then will note that six various skews have been proposed in the past for the proposed chiasm of Alma 36, and identify the three that have most often been noted. The paper will then discuss levels analysis generally and discuss the question whether a study of any of the three most commonly depicted skews in the proposed Alma 36 chiasm arguably can enhance the levels analysis of the proposed chiasm.
The various SKUs identified for the proposed ALMA 36 chiasm will be evaluated in light of the question of whether any are legitimate, and, if so, whether their presence enhances the levels analysis of the proposed chiasm. Finally, after discussing the question of why so many potential SKUs have been identified in the single-level analysis of the proposed chiasm of ALMA 36, the SKUs and asymmetrical chiasms of Deuteronomy 8 and ALMA 36 will be compared. What is a SKU? The diagram below depicts a hypothetical skewed chiasm over eight verses of hypothetical text, one verse of text per chiasm element, and one chiasm element per verse of text. The reference to verses here is merely arbitrary. Any amount of text from one word or phrase through to a large block of text could constitute an element of the hypothetical skewed chiasm depicted here. A, verse 1, B, verse 2, C, verse 3, D, verse 4, D prime, verse 5, B prime, verse 6, C prime, verse 7, A prime, verse 8. The above can be identified as an ABCDDBCA skewed chiasm. The skew occurs because the sequence of elements in the first flank of the chiasm, from elements A through D, is not perfectly mirrored by symmetrical reversal of D prime through A prime in the second flank. The flow of the hypothetical text from D prime to A prime in the second half of the text features the skew at the transition from element D prime to element C prime. If an analyst wrongly expects and seeks to identify mirror symmetry in the text when the text actually manifests asymmetry caused by a skew, the analyst might proceed with the expectation that the transition from elements A to D in the first half, the first flank of the text, will be answered in precisely the reversed sequence as D prime to A prime in the second flank, thus improperly imposing symmetry, perhaps by ignoring some of the text. What is said generally about skews and chiastic asymmetry? Skews are said to result from what some refer to as symmetrophobia, defined as an author's purposeful avoidance, not fear, of symmetry, perhaps inspired by the second commandment perhaps inspired by superstition, or by a quest for beauty, or to create emphasis. Symmetrophobia is defined as a characteristic asymmetry, as in ancient Egyptian architecture and in Japanese design, implying an aversion to symmetry. As discussed by Charles H. Talbert, asymmetry in ancient texts was, according to him and others, apparently the rule and not the exception. Quote, Why these imperfections, if the author intended a chiastic architectural pattern? One does not have to look far for an answer. Imperfections of form are the rule in antiquity. They are found in all the various classical sources to which we referred earlier. It was, moreover, a stated rule that perfect symmetry was to be avoided, such as Horace on the Art of Poetry, pages 347 and following. Longinus, On the Sublime, Part 33, Section 1. Demetrius, On Style, Part 5, Section 250. For the classical mind, pure form is never beautiful. It is neither natural nor living. 
It is the infinite, minute variations within the law of form which give beauty both to nature and the greatest art. Flaws in symmetry were also the rule in the ancient Near East. G. A. Smith's term for it is symmetrophobia, an instinctive aversion to absolute symmetry, which may express itself in arbitrary and even violent disturbances of the style or pattern of the work. End quote. This is where the idea of the skew, the existence of skewed chiasmus, and the concept of asymmetry in chiasms come into play. The term skewed chiasmus was coined by William L. Holliday and refers to, quote, a chiasmus which, after the midpoint, begins its way back, only to plunge forward briefly once more. It is a striking compromise between the chiastic pattern and sequentiality, end quote. By sequentiality, Holiday means a reversion to direct parallelism. Citing Holiday, Wilfred G. E. Watson differentiates straightforward structural chiasmus from other forms of chiasmus and identifies four types of these other forms of chiasmus, saying they are based on different principles, one of them being skewed chiasmus. Says James E. Patrick, quote, as regards deliberate asymmetry beyond that of the central climax, structural imbalance can be a technique for emphasizing particular passages, end quote. Jeremy T. Walsh refers to a skew as a disturbance and observes, quote, the clearer the fundamental symmetry and the more obtrusive the disturbance, the more the asymmetrical element draws a reader's attention, end quote. Walsh elsewhere identifies an imperfect concentric pattern of ABCDBCA in the proposed chiasm of Isaiah chapter 41 verses 1 to 20, manifesting what he characterizes as an irregularity in the pattern and an awkward interruption occasioned by the skew at verses 14 to 16. A, but you. B, do not fear. C, lo. D, I, Yahweh, your God. B prime, do not fear. C prime, behold. A prime, but you. Says Walsh, quote, In verses 14 to 16, the three elements function similarly. The do not fear and but you elements are closely related. Your rescuer is Israel's holy one, and you will exult in Yahweh. The behold element illustrates the message by painting another picture, this time of Israel's future triumph over natural obstacles blocking its way. However, the order of the elements in verses 14 to 16 is awkward. The behold element appears between the other two, thus interrupting their smooth connection, and at the same time violating the pattern established in verses 8 to 12. We would have expected behold first, followed by do not fear, then, but you, in order to carry out the concentric organization that, as we shall see, characterizes the whole poem. The reason for the asymmetry is that, in each case, Yahweh's help, do not fear, I have helped you, verses 10 and 14, must be announced before the poet can depict the results of that help. End quote. Similarly, Joanna Dewey makes the following relevant observation, quote, Balanced literary patterns, whether symmetrical or repetitive parallelism in the ancient world, normally contained asymmetric elements. 
ancient authors on rhetoric or literary criticism may be cited either praising the lack of perfect balance or condemning too perfect balance. The fact that it is apparently easier to find such statements in ancient writings than statements arguing for extended balance perhaps implies that balance in literary compositions was taken for granted, consciously or unconsciously. From a rhetorical perspective, an effective way to emphasize an element is to make it stand out from the general rhetorical pattern." End quote. On the one hand, in 1965, Paul Gechter characterized symmetry as a feature, quote, accomplished by an equal number of pericopes preceding and following a central pericope that, quote, correspond in placement, i.e., in their distance to the center, end quote. Responding to what he refers to as John W. Welch's 1981 plea for objectivity in identifying chiasmus, Ian Thompson suggests as one of his own three requirements without the fulfillment of which an alleged pattern could not be accepted as chiastic, a precondition that, quote, the symmetrical elements will be present in precisely inverted order, end quote. Yet, on the other hand, strict adherence to symmetry does not seem universally to characterize chiasmus seen in biblical texts. Thompson himself, for example, cautions, quote, the existence of non-balancing elements in an otherwise well-developed symmetrical pattern must be very carefully accounted for. Such deviation may, in fact, be very significant exegetically. To allow even one such non-balancing pair may arguably be seen as a compromise with the stated priority of objectivity and clarity of parallels. However, it is often the paradoxical presence of asymmetries in the pattern, built by definition on symmetry, that draws the reader's attention to the content of those elements, giving them, consequently, more prominence." End quote. Thompson adds, quote, to develop a chiasmus in which the second half precisely mirrors in thought and language the first would be a somewhat sterile endeavor. Its function in terms of the argument would effectively be limited to reinforcement. Thus, paradoxically, in a device which depends for its definition on symmetry, it is often the asymmetries that emerge from the pattern that drive the argument forward. Part of the task of exegesis is to identify those asymmetries and to suggest what prompts their introduction. Another kind of asymmetry in a chiasmus occurs when no clear parallel can be seen between a single pair of elements in an otherwise viable pattern. There are a number of possible explanations. End quote. Thompson then notes five explanations. One, accidental or unintentional imbalance created by the author, something that, quote, could never be proved, end quote. Two, inability of the author to sustain the pattern, considered unlikely. Three, an overriding consideration attracting the author's attention or an author's distraction. Four, quote, cultural aversion to perfect symmetry, end quote, citing George Adam Smith. And five, deliberate use by an author of asymmetry or imbalance, quote, as an emphasizing device, end quote. On this last point, Thompson cites Van Dyke Pyrenach and quotes him, quote, in this case, the emphasized item is highlighted precisely because it does not fit into the expected symmetrical scheme, end quote. Noting that Van Dyke Pyrenach calls this phenomenon a broken chiasm, Thompson adds, quote, 
The author produces his effect by the unexpected absence of parallelism, end quote. R. Alan Culpepper states, as a consideration in the task of discerning chiasmus, that, quote, one should generally not expect perfect symmetry or complete adherence to the identifiable pattern, end quote. Cheryl Exum and Charles Talbert cite Smith on this point and add that, quote, chiastic structures are often accompanied with an intentional flaw, end quote. Without using the term skewed, Welch refers to a skewed chiasmus as one with an inversion that is, quote, less than perfect, end quote. And while taking issue with the use of the term symmetrophobia, Ernst R. Wendland refers to, quote, certain deliberate alterations to basic generic patterns as a means of augmenting the artistic appeal and rhetorical impact of the discourse, end quote. Says Wendland further, quote, in the hands of the Hebrew composers, such as 1 Chronicles chapter 6, verse 31, literary structure was never a straitjacket, but was always a flexible tool whereby subdued as well as powerful communicative effects could be achieved when the need arose. To designate such subtle structural modifications by the term symmetrophobia suggests a certain artificiality or undue arbitrariness in this compositional strategy. On the contrary, it was skillfully exercised to accomplish specific rhetorical objectives within the text, that is, in addition to the general aim of using formal difference to enhance similarity. End quote. Leslie C. Allen simply refers to Smith's symmetrophobia as, quote, a refreshingly human aspect of Hebrew composition, end quote. Victor M. Wilson goes so far as to state that the symmetrophobia to which Smith referred at least insofar as the feature appears in Hebrew texts, was occasioned by obedience to the second commandment, Exodus chapter 20, verse 4, Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 8, forbidding the making of any representation or likeness of God, compelling the author to build an occasional flaw into the system, end quote. Says Angelico di Marco regarding asymmetry in chiastic poetic texts, quote, we are in the field of literature and not in that of geometry. For the poetic compositions, smaller deviations can be expected." End quote. Similarly, in discussing asymmetry of Psalm 145, Jonathan Magonet notes a numerical asymmetry in the text and warns, quote, It is worth noting that the sections, Psalm 145 verses 4 to 10 and Psalm 145 verses 14 to 20, though both consisting of seven verses, are asymmetrical in their form. The first one has two verses enclosed by a set of four and one. The second has one verse enclosed by a set of three and three. The possibility of such asymmetry in a concentric structure is an important point to remember, both as a warning against attempting to recognize or impose too tidy a pattern upon a text and rearrange where it does not fit and as a further indication of the freedom of the author to play with the form and the reader's expectations in whatever way he wishes to achieve his effects. Perhaps this is also an indication of the feeling that total symmetry is a dangerous thing, so that, I understand, into the pattern of every Persian carpet a flaw is deliberately built." End quote. J. Paul Tanner refers to, quote, asymmetrical patterns where there is a disruption in the symmetry for the purpose of causing something to stand out for emphasis, end quote. In short, 
Symmetry results from the operation of the two definitional characteristics of chiasmus, repetition and reversal. But asymmetry does not necessarily destroy the prospect that a text is chiastic. Symmetry alone is not determinative, but neither is asymmetry. Skews resulting in asymmetry and said to result from what some call symmetrophobia may or may not be inspired in Hebrew texts by the second commandment. That notion is not well attested. But chiastic analysis often reveals asymmetry by the presence of one or more and sometimes numerous skews in the pattern. One example from the realm of biblical studies is proposed by Yehuda Radai for the text of Exodus chapter 14, verses 4 to 31, depicting a skew at verses 25 to 26. A. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. A prime. They believed in the Lord. B. With a high hand. B prime. The great hand. C. The salvation of the Lord. C prime. The Lord saved Israel. E. Stretch out your hand. E prime. Stretch out your hand. F. On dry ground through the sea. F prime. On dry ground through the sea. A prime in the middle. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. The skew occurs in the second half at elements D prime and E prime, directly parallel with D and E in the first half of the chiasm. Another example is the chiasm proposed by Welch for James chapter 1 verse 1 through chapter 5 verse 20, manifesting skews in numerous places in the second half of the text. The first half of the proposed chiasm is represented by A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, I, J, K, L, M. But the second half of the chiasm sets forth repetition, but not mirror image repetition. K, L, E, D, B, I, H, C, A, F, J, G. One noteworthy current-day proposal of a skewed chiasm is that evidenced by Welch in the chiastic structure of the combined texts of Leviticus 18 and 20. The first half, or first flank, of the chiasm is represented by the letters A through W, sequentially, as we have it in our alphabet. But the second half, or second flank, of the proposed chiasm manifests non-adherence to asymmetrical pattern, represented by many skews from W, U, O, S, V, T, D, N, E, J, P, L, Q, F, M, H, G, I, K, B, A, C. In short, skews either appropriately appear in large-scale chiasms or they do not. The literature discussed above suggests that skews not only are evident in ancient chiasms, but are the norm. What skews have been proposed in the past for Alma 36? Welch identified asymmetrical chiasmus in Alma 36 in 1988, 1989, 1991, and 1999, and others noted it in 1986, 1992, 1999, 2000, 2007, 2010, and 2019 and 20, all resulting from one, two, or three of six various skews they each discerned and depicted in verses 3, 19, 23, two of them in verse 26, 
or 28. But apart from one comment by Noel B. Reynolds concerning what here will be referred to as a rare form of skew in verse 3, and apart from Jeff Lindsay's observations about the skew he observes in verse 28, there is essentially no discussion of the skews the analysts otherwise have only depicted. Among proposals advanced over the years discerning a chiasm in Alma 36, those that have noted a skew in the proposed chiasm of the chapter have identified one proposed skew each, either at verse 3, at verse 19, at one of two places in verse 23, at verse 26, or at verse 28, with one analyst, Wright, in 1986, identifying three skews in the text at verses 19, 23, and 26. Three of the skews most often identified by these analysts are evaluated next to seek to learn if any of those three skews may be beneficial to analysis of the chapter as a chiasm. The three skews most often proposed for Alma chapter 36 are those of verses 28, 26, and 3. They will be depicted and introduced in cursory fashion here and then discussed in more detail later in this paper. The verse 28, raise me up, skew. Alone in 1991, and together with his son Greg in 1999, Welch depicted but did not discuss a skew in the proposed pattern over the text of verse 28. Years later, in 2016, Jeff Lindsay would not only refer to, but also discuss this verse 28 skew, though not using the terms skew or asymmetry. He identifies the feature as creating one of the loose spots in the chiasm, with text, as he says, quote, apparently showing up a verse late due to a slip or more of a necessity in the original language or a translation issue, end quote. Lindsay notes that the raised up at the last day phraseology of verse 28 corresponds to the lifted up at the last day phraseology of verse 3, serving respectively as the opening and closing elements of what he terms the rising strand, stating that the verse 28 skew otherwise is out of place and works better if moved slightly. Welch's 1999 proposed single level pattern is shown below. The pattern proceeds in the first half from A through Q, and in the second half from Q prime back to A prime, with a skew at I prime. A, my son, give ear to my words, A prime, this according to his word. B, keep the commandments, and ye shall prosper in the land. B prime, keep the commandments, and ye shall prosper in the land. C. Do as I have done. C prime. Know as I do know. D. Remember the captivity of our fathers. D prime. Retain a remembrance of their captivity. E. They were in bondage. E prime. As God brought our fathers out of bondage and captivity. F. He surely did deliver them. F prime, he will deliver me. G, trust in God. G prime, trust in him. H, supported in trials, troubles, and afflictions. H prime, supported under trials, troubles, and afflictions. I, lifted up at the last day. I prime, and raise me up at the last day. 
J. I know this not of myself, but of God. J prime. Therefore, my knowledge is of God. K. Born of God. K prime. Born of God. L. I sought to destroy the church. L prime. I labored to bring souls to repentance. M. My limbs were paralyzed. M prime. My limbs received strength again. N. Fear of being in the presence of God. N prime. Long to be in the presence of God. O. Pains of a damned soul. O prime. Joy as exceeding as was the pain. P. Harrowed up by the memory of sins. P prime. Harrowed by the memory of sins no more. Q. I remembered Jesus Christ, a son of God. Q prime. I cried, Jesus Christ, son of God. The skew occurs in the second half of the proposed chiasm between elements F prime and E prime, where element I prime exists and raise me up at the last day. Note that element I prime above, quoting part of verse 28, is indented further from the left margin than elements F prime and E prime that surround it. That element I prime is indented the same distance as element I, quoting part of verse 3, to show a meaningful correspondence between verses 3 and 28. If the earlier discussion of skews, skewed chiasmus, and chiastic asymmetry is plausible, it would suggest that the presence of the skew in verse 28 and the resulting asymmetry of the proposed chiastic pattern need not be rejected. Indeed, the skew identified here also is manifest when the proposed chiasm of Alma 36 is subjected to levels analysis, as discussed by Noel B. Reynolds in 2019 and 2020, and as shown by others earlier. The concept of levels analysis will be examined further below, and the verse 28 skew will be evaluated in light of that analysis. The verse 26 knowledge skew. Gregory B. Wright identifies a skew in verse 26, reproducing here from his proposal only those elements affected by his proposed skew. I, and I would not that ye think that I know of myself, not of the temporal, but of the spiritual, not of the carnal mind, but of God. Verse 4. I prime, and the knowledge which I have is of God. Verse 26. J, now behold, I say unto you, if I had not been born of God. Verse 5. J prime, Behold, many have been born of God, and have tasted as I have tasted, and have seen eye to eye as I have seen. Verse 26. K. I should not have known these things. Verse 5. K prime. Therefore they do know of these things, of which I have spoken, as I do know. Verse 26. L. But God has, by the mouth of his holy angel, made these things known unto me, not of any worthiness of myself. Verse 5. L prime, for because of the word which he has imparted unto me. Verse 26. The skew that Wright identifies is at his elements J prime and K prime in verse 26, which are directly parallel with his elements J and K of verse 5. The above proposed skew is not manifested as a skew in the levels analyses offered either in 2019 and 2020 by Reynolds or in 1997 and 2000 by Dempke and Van Adder. Only Wright depicts an asymmetrical chiastic pattern over the text of verse 26. 
The proposals by Reynolds and by Dempke and Van Natter will be discussed further below in light of Wright's proposed verse 26 skew. The verse 3, my son, hear my words, skew. In 1988, Welch was the first to recognize and record, albeit in an unpublished study, the verse 3 skew of Alma 36. Welch's proposal, otherwise depicting a chiasm for the entire chapter, quotes all of the text of the chapter, rewrites the text to display not only the various correspondences between elements of the proposed overall chiasm of the chapter, but also smaller chiasms and parallelisms within each of the elements of the proposed overall chiasm of the text. As a subpattern for the text of the first four verses of the chapter, Welch suggests an A, B, C, D, A, E, F pattern, thus showing an element A reversion in verse 3, My son, hear my words, hearkening back to the A element of verse 1, My son, give ear to my words. The skew thus appears as a second element A in the first half of the chapter, comprised of words found in the first half of verse 3, My son, hear my words, repeating the concepts and some of the words of verse 1, My son, give ear to my words. Set forth below is the format for the full text of verses 1 to 4 as Welch depicted it in 1988. Bold font is supplied here for the text from within verse 3, where Welch depicts the skew in the pattern a pattern that otherwise would be expected to appear as A, B, C, D, E, F, but which instead manifests as A, B, C, D, A, E, F, with a second element A between elements D and E. A. My son, give ear to my words. B. For I swear unto you that inasmuch as ye shall keep the commandments of God, ye shall prosper in the land. C. I would that ye should do as I have done in remembering the captivity of our fathers. D. For they were in bondage, and none could deliver them, except it was the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, and he surely did deliver them in their afflictions. A. And now, O my son Helaman, behold, thou art in thy youth, and therefore I beseech of thee that thou wilt hear my words and learn of me. E. For I do know that whosoever shall put their trust in God shall be supported in their trials and their troubles and their afflictions and shall be lifted up at the last day. F. And I would not that ye think that I know of myself. Not of the temporal, but of the spiritual. Not of the carnal mind, but of God. Elements A, B, C, D, A, E, and F in Welch's proposed pattern above sets forth all of the text of verses 1 to 4 corresponding with the reversed and repeated elements of the second flank of the chiasm of the chapter, structuring the text of verses 26 to 30. But the occurrence of the second element A above, quoting the first half of verse 3, constitutes a skew in the pattern. In the case of the verse 3 skew of Alma chapter 36, rather than the proposed elements of the chiasm flowing uninterruptedly from element A to element F, an interruption occurs between elements D and E. The thought and even the wording of the second element A, the text in verse 3, parallels the introductory salutation in verse 1 of the chapter, with some of the words and phrases of verse 1, my son, give ear to my words, being repeated either precisely or nearly precisely in verse 3, my son, hear my words. It should be noted that the proposed verse 3 skew is different from the skews proposed for verses 26 and 28. 
While skews generally result from a reversion to direct parallelism only after the middle of a chiastic text, as with verses 26 and 28, the reversion to direct parallelism here in verse 3, repeating element A prior to the middle of the text, can be characterized as a special instance of a skew. Other instances of skews in the first half of a chiastic pattern are evident elsewhere. For example, in the repetition of element B in the first half of the pattern of Jeremiah chapter 23, verses 1 to 4, and the repeated D and G elements in the first half of a lengthy pattern of Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 1 to 26. Perhaps in the face of examples such as those, it indeed might well have been appropriate for Welch and Perry early on to have suggested that the text of the first half of verse 3 of Alma 36 may be part of a reversion to the A element of verse 1, rather than being, as Reynolds describes it, quote, largely independent from the rest of the presentation's structure, end quote. It is important also to note the history of treatment of verse 3 in chiastic analysis of Alma chapter 36. In 1989, Welch slightly refined his full-text 1988 proposal. In that refinement of his proposal for Alma chapter 36, he did not note the skew of verse 3. However, when Reynolds published his Rethinking Alma 36 paper three decades later in 2019 in Give Ear to My Words and in 2020 in Interpreter, he stated that he was offering extensions and modifications of Welch's 1989 analysis. The verse 3 skew that Welch had depicted in 1988, but had not depicted in 1989, nevertheless was indeed accounted for, though not depicted as such, in Reynolds' 2019 and 2020 analysis. Reynolds depicts an ABCD, ABCD, direct parallelism between the text of the first half of verse 3 with the text of the second half of verse 3, with no correspondence depicted between verse 3 and verse 1, though he nevertheless offers in the 2020 version of the paper an, an insightful observation about how the repetition of Alma's command to Helaman falls outside of the rhetorical structure of the chapter. Reynolds' analysis accounts for all of the text of the chapter, and therefore necessarily includes the skew, even though he does not refer to it as a skew. In accounting for the text of verse 3, which in this present paper is considered to be a special form of skew, appearing as it does in the first flank of the chapter-wide chiasm, Reynolds refers to the text of verse 3 as a repetition and expansion of the appeal Alma made to his son Helaman in verse 1. And Reynolds sets off the text of the first half of verse 3 from his depiction of the rest of the text, thus acknowledging the importance of the first half of that verse. Reynolds provides the following insight into the important role played by that part of the text of that verse. Quote, verse 3 begins with a repetition and expansion of the same appeal to Alma's son Helaman made in verse 1. These statements addressing his son as the audience provide the second of six such forms of address that are largely independent from the rest of the presentation's structure, though they are rather evenly distributed, three in each half of the chiasm. 
This second appeal, however, is unique in that it points to Helaman's youth as Alma's reason for sharing these words and for encouraging him to learn from his father. Presumably, this appeal, like the teaching that follows, is intended to have universal application to all who may benefit from Alma's teaching, and especially to the youth. End quote. In 1991, Welch published a masterpiece, Alma 36, a chapter in Rediscovering the Book of Mormon, that provided what Reynolds characterizes as Welch's much-abbreviated summary of the 1989 study. In his 1991 masterpiece chapter, Welch again depicts the skew of verse 3, though he does not discuss it. Concerning this verse 3 skew, it should be observed that in his 1992 Book of Mormon text reformatted according to parallelistic patterns, Donald W. Perry quotes the entire text of Alma 36, and in displaying patterns of the text, he too depicts the skew of verse 3 without discussing it, supporting Welch's 1988 analysis and foreshadowing the importance Reynolds places on it. What is Level's analysis of a chiastic text? In order to evaluate whether any of the skews identified in the proposed chiasm of Alma chapter 36 might enhance Level's analysis of that proposed chiasm, we must first address what Level's analysis is. Simply put, it consists of analyzing a text both to discern an overall chiasm formed by the reversed repetition of large sections of text on one level, while also analyzing structures of smaller portions of text within each of the larger sections to discern what additional chiastic, parallelistic, or other rhetorical features appear there on another level. In 1975, David J. Clark emphasized, quote, that multiple levels of patterning may coexist, superimposed and interpenetrating. The recognition of one of them does not necessarily involve the repudiation of others, end quote. Similarly, in analyzing portions of the book of 2 Samuel, Charles Conroy notes that, quote, chiastic disposition, understood in the strict sense of an ABBA pattern, can be noted on the level of verbal expression, on the level of sentence types or syntactical elements, and on the level of content elements, end quote. In 1980, Shimon Bar-Efrat outlined what he perceived to be the various elements upon which structural analysis may be based, end quote, offering the following forms of levels analysis, quote, with regard to these elements, four different levels should be distinguished. One, the verbal level. Two, the level of narrative technique. Three, the level of the narrative world. Four, the level of the conceptual content, end quote. Regarding the verbal level, Bar-Efrat stated, the analysis of structure on this level is based on words and phrases. Regarding the level of narrative technique, Bar-Efrat noted, quote, the analysis of structure on this level is based on variations in narrative method, such as narrator's account as opposed to character's speech, dialogue, scenic presentation versus summary, narration as against description, explanation, comment, etc., end quote. Regarding the level of the narrative world, Bar-Efrat observed, quote, the analysis of structure on this level is based on the narrative content as created by the language and the techniques, 
The two chief components of narrative content are characters and events. Other components are setting, clothes, arms, and similar items, end quote. And regarding the level of conceptual content, Bar Ifrat stated, on this level, the analysis of structure is based on the themes of the narrative units or the ideas contained therein, end quote. As another example of levels analysis, in 1981, Yehuda Radai noted specifically that chiasmus in the scroll of Ruth reaches to many levels, and he noted generally also that, quote, where we are dealing with chiasmus in small units, it is easy to speak of rhetorical or stylistic device which the author consciously employed. Should it be any more difficult to account similarly for larger arrangements when the very same pattern recurs over and over again on all levels of organization within a volume whose vast composition spanned the course of a millennium and when almost 100 writers had a share in its composition and collation? End quote. Similarly, in 1995, Neil R. Leroux observed, quote, Chiastic structure can occur at many linguistic levels, lower levels of letter, sounds, syllables, and words, or higher levels of phrases, sentences, even larger units, such as what we today often set off as paragraphs and chapters, end quote. In his own discussion of chiasmus in Alma chapter 36, Reynolds cites to Roland Manet, who... Reynolds says, gives the most detailed explanation of rhetorical levels. Menet published his two extensive works concerning levels analysis in 1998 and 2012. Menet's explanation is thoroughgoing and comprehensive, and he places levels analysis in its historical context. An easily understood simple and yet elegant example of levels analysis is H. Douglas Buckwalter's analysis of Luke's travel narrative, with the structure of an overall chiasm for all of the text of Luke chapter 9 verse 51 through Luke chapter 19 verse 27, and with the parallelistic structures, chiasms, and direct parallelisms appearing in subordinate levels of that same text. The structure of an overall chiasm for all of the text is depicted as an A, B, C, D, C, B, A concentric structure. A is mission of Jesus, the rejected Lord, turns toward Jerusalem. A prime is mission of Jesus, rejected client king, nears Jerusalem. Element B, persistent pursuit of God and Christ mandated by gospel. B prime Persistent pursuit of God and Christ, mandated by gospel. Element C, lessons on money, possessions, and faithful service to master. Element C prime, lesson on money, possessions, and faithful service to master. And the central element D, repentance of sin and submission to Jesus. Without commenting on the credibility of Buckwalter's analysis, it is sufficient to say here that his proposal is easily seen as an example where within each of the elements of the larger full-text chiasm, labeled A, B, C, D, C prime, B prime, A prime, there is depicted a smaller feature with a rhetorical structure of some sort. The smaller rhetorical features he identifies consists of four directly parallel structures, two of them being A, B, C, D, ABCD structures, and two of them being AB, AB structures. One chiastic structure, an ABBA chiasm, 
and two concentric structures, each an ABCD-CBA concentrism. Reynolds likewise depicts numerous similar structures at the subordinate levels of his analysis, accounting as he does for rhetorical features in all of the text of Alma 36. Reynolds does not claim to be the first to introduce levels analysis to a study of the chiasm of Alma chapter 36. Regarding levels analysis in Hebrew writing generally, Reynolds' discussion of levels analysis and the depiction of his proposal regarding Alma chapter 36 builds upon, expands, and brings nearly to completed fruition all prior discussions or depictions of this sort of analysis. Numerous other analysts previously had exemplified levels analysis of Alma chapter 36. In his analysis of Alma chapter 36, Reynolds perceives the following overall chiasm for the chapter. His proposal is rendered here in the more common indented left margin format, retaining here the quoted and paraphrased wording chosen by Reynolds, and adding here the verse number references he supplies for his quotations and paraphrases. Element A, my words. Element A prime, his word. Element B, that inasmuch as ye shall keep the commandments of God, ye shall prosper in the land. Element B prime, that inasmuch as ye shall keep the commandments of God, ye shall prosper in the land. Element C, remember the captivity of our fathers. Element C prime, remember the captivity of our fathers. Element D, trust in God and be supported in trials, troubles, and afflictions faith in Christ, and enduring to the end. Element D prime, trust in God and be supported in trials, troubles, and afflictions, faith in Christ, and enduring to the end. Element E, knowledge of God. Element E prime, born of God. Element F, destroy the church of God. Element F prime, bring souls unto repentance. Element G, fell to the earth. Element G prime, stood upon my feet. Element H, that I might not be brought to stand in the presence of my God. Element H prime, my soul did long to be there. And central element I, Jesus Christ atoned for the sins of the world. Reynolds refers to the above analysis as his Level 4 analysis. Necessarily, it omits reference to significant amounts of text, verses 5, 7 to 9, 12 to 14, 20 to 21, 25, and 28, text otherwise accounted for in other levels of his analysis. For example, in analyzing sections B and B prime, Reynolds discerns a direct parallelism of ABC, ABC, ABC within elements B and B prime. B, verse 1, A, for I swear unto you, B, that inasmuch as ye shall keep the commandments of God, C, ye shall prosper in the land. B prime, verse 30, A, but behold, my son, this is not all, for Ye ought to know, as I do know, B, that inasmuch as ye shall keep the commandments of God, C, ye shall prosper in the land. A prime, 
And ye had ought to know also, B prime, that inasmuch as ye will not keep the commandments of God, C prime, ye shall be cut off from his presence. The above three ABC, ABC, ABC direct parallelisms represent Reynolds's level five analysis of those two level four B and B prime elements. When Reynolds advanced his 2019 and 2020 multi-level proposal, he accounted for patterns in text previously omitted from others' proposals. In doing so, he stated, quote, while criticisms of published chiastic analyses of ALMA 36 have pointed to large sections of text that are not readily included in the traditional chiastic analysis of that chapter, application of the tools of Hebrew rhetoric reveals a chiastic structure that appears to be fully organized at subordinate levels, leaving no extra text unaccounted for in the analysis." End quote. Although Reynolds does not specify what the unaccounted-for text is that he says critics identify as omitted by other analysts, recourse to the criticisms identified in his footnote 5 and discernible otherwise reveals that one of the sections of text that previously were not readily included in the traditional chiastic analysis was part of the text of verse 3, specifically the loan word, words. Critics had considered the appearance of words in verse 3 to be an unanswered element, a maverick appearance of the word, as Welch would term it, a word with no counterpart in the second half of the chapter's text. Yet, when the word is considered to be part of a special skew consisting of all of the words of the first half of verse 3, it rightly is seen as a parallel to and an expansion of the verse 1 salutation. Do the skews enhance the level's analysis? It is appropriate to determine whether the three most noted skews, verses 28, 26, and 3, enhance a level's analysis of Alma 36. Let's consider this for each verse in turn. The verse 28, Raise Me Up, skew. The verse 28 skew readily appears in Welch's single-level analysis, here depicted with only the two surrounding chiastic elements. Element F prime, he will deliver me, verse 27. Element I prime, and raise me up at the last day, verse 28. Element E prime, as God brought our fathers out of bondage and captivity, verses 28 to 29. And it also appears in the multi-level analyses presented by Reynolds in 2019 and 2020. The two analyses differ slightly. The 2019 analysis appears here first, bolding here added to highlight the skew in the following parallelism with skew, appearing as ABCD, ABCD, CBAD. Element D, verse 3. And now, O my son Helaman, A, behold, thou art in thy youth, B, and therefore I beseech of thee, C, that thou wilt hear my words, D, and learn of me. A. For I do know, B, that whomsoever shall put his trust in God, C, shall be supported in their trials and their troubles and their afflictions, D, and shall be lifted up at the last day. Element D prime, verse 27. C prime. 
And I have been supported under trials and troubles of every kind, yea, in all manner of afflictions. I, yea, God hath delivered me from prisons and from bonds and from death. Be prime, yea, and I do put my trust in him. I, and he will still deliver me. Verse 28, A prime, and I know. D prime, that he will raise me up at the last day. I, to dwell with him in glory. Ballast line, yea, and I will praise him forever. Reynolds' slightly different 2020 analysis appears here second, bolding here added to highlight the skew in the following partial parallelism with skew, appearing as ABC, ABCD, CBAD. Element D, verse 3. And now, O my son Helaman, behold, thou art in thy youth, A, and therefore I beseech of thee, B, that thou wilt hear my words, C, and learn of me, A, for I do know, B, that whomsoever shall put his trust in God, C, shall be supported in their trials and their troubles and their afflictions, D, and shall be lifted up at the last day. Element D prime, verse 27, C prime. And I have been supported under trials and troubles of every kind, yea, and in all manner of afflictions. I, yea, God hath delivered me from prisons and from bonds and from death. B prime, yea, and I do put my trust in him. I, and he will still deliver me. Verse 28, A prime, and I know, D prime, that he will raise me up at the last day. I, to dwell with him in glory. Ballast line, yea, and I will praise him forever. The verse 28 skew is accounted for differently in the three analyses, whereas in Welch's single-level analysis, the verse 28 skew appears as a part of the main chapter-long chiasm. In Reynolds' multi-level analyses, it appears as an ABCD-CBAD skew in the subordinate-level parallelism of verses 27 and 28, and not as part of the main chapter-long chiasm. Because perceived chiastic structures of lengthy texts are said to appear because of a reversal in the sequence of repeated words, phrases, and ideas, such appearances of the phrases lifted up at the last day in Alma chapter 36 verse 3 and raise me up at the last day in Alma chapter 36 verse 28 can be accounted for in one of two ways. First, within the pattern of the chiasm that is proposed to structure the entire chapter as with Welch and Welch in 1999, with the text of verse 28 forming a skew visible in the depiction of the chiasm that otherwise spans the entire chapter. Or, second, in a subordinate level, level 5 flank of a short chiasm, such as what Reynolds proposes as the ABCD-CBAD skewed structure for the text of verses 3 and 27 to 28, which is where Reynolds accounts for those phrases, without labeling it as a skew a special sort of skew not visible or accounted for in the depiction of the level 4 chiasm proposed for the entire chapter. In either case, the skew should be and is accounted for. But if the accounting takes place only in depicting the correspondence at the lower level, level 5, the depiction of the upper level chiasm at level 4 is deprived of some of the meaning it otherwise could and should reflect. It is here that recognition of the verse 28 skew becomes valuable in the analysis. But in this case, it is not the fact that it is a skew that makes it valuable. 
though it does draw attention to the text that forms the skew. Rather, it is the fact that as a skew, it draws attention to text that is of such significance that it likely should be accounted for in any analysis. Thus, the appropriateness and success of the approach taken by Reynolds lies in the fact that he accounts for all of the text of Alma 36. Alma wrote a text, not an outline. The level four analysis presented by Reynolds is built on what he calls the key parallel semantic elements. And in the subordinate levels of his analysis, he accounts for all of the text of the chapter, discerning not only the parallels that are noted in his level four analysis, but also all of the parallels that he notes in the single level analyses of others, including Welch and Welch in 1999. While level four analysis by Reynolds identifies a chapter-wide concentric organization for the chapter based on elements fashioned on quotations and paraphrases selected from the text, the selection of elements for his level four analysis is indeed only a selection. That means in presenting his chapter-wide concentric structure, he could well include reference to the missing text for which he otherwise accounts. For example, the parallel semantic elements he chooses to exemplify as his elements D and D prime at level four do not draw upon all of the text within the subunits or text units that he defines as his D and D prime text units. Brevity of expression in a short article is a virtue, but characterization of what fully the text of Alma chapter 36 itself reflects as one of the 17 main proposed elements of the concentric organization of Alma 36 might well merit full expression. Reynolds describes the parallel semantic elements of D and D prime as trust in God and be supported in trials, troubles, and afflictions, faith in Jesus Christ and enduring to the end. But what of the remaining text within the D and D prime units? Putting aside for now the ballast line of verse 28, yea, and I will praise him forever, and putting aside also what Reynolds describes as the two level six commentaries of Alma's personal facts from prisons and from bonds and from death, and he will still deliver me of verse 27, Reynolds identifies the following as his sub-elements within his unit D, verse 3b, that correspond with the sub-elements within his unit D prime, verses 27 to 28, namely A to A prime, B to B prime, C to C prime, and D to D prime, with the sub-elements of D prime forming neither a direct parallelism nor a symmetric chiastic parallelism those sub-elements of D manifesting instead a sequence that otherwise manifests as a CBAD skew. Element D, verse 3, A, for I do know, B, that whomsoever shall put his trust in God, C, shall be supported in their trials and their troubles and their afflictions, D, and shall be lifted up at the last day. D prime, verse 27, C prime, and I have been supported under trials and troubles of every kind, yea, and in all manner of afflictions, B prime, yea, and I do put my trust in him, verse 28, A prime, and I know, D prime, that he will raise me up at the last day. Clearly, the distant skewed chiasm of A, B, C, D, C, B, A, D 
successfully accounts at level five for all of the text, but the key parallel semantic elements that Reynolds otherwise identifies for his level four analysis do not reflect all of the level five sub-elements and instead refer only to the language of the B, C, C prime, and B prime sub-elements. Trust in God and be supported in trials, troubles, and afflictions. The analysis does not refer to, quote, or even cite the A, D, A prime, and D prime sub-elements. For I do know, and I know, and shall be lifted up at the last day, and he will raise me up at the last day. The skew thus suggests that the descriptions on the level four analysis of the concentric organization of ALMA 36 might even more accurately describe the D and D prime subunits if they are not limited to a selection of subelements B, C, C prime, and B prime alone. Instead of being limited only to those level five subelements, the level four D element, as articulated, could more fully describe the textual level four subunits of D and D prime in a way that includes all of the ideas conveyed in all of the text of sub-elements A, B, C, D, D prime, C prime, B prime, and A prime. The D and D prime structure might be worded even more fully as follows. D and D prime, trust in God and be supported in trials, troubles, and afflictions, faith in Jesus Christ, and enduring to the end, when I shall be lifted up at the last day. Such wording would account for all of the text and all of the meaning of all of the text of D and D prime. Reynolds does account for the skew in his rewriting of verses 27 and 28, though he does so only at the subordinate level, the level of the text itself, which is where it should be accounted for. But the substantive text and its meaning as reflected in the skew does not otherwise appear in his analysis at level four. But with the above modification, accounting for it could be accomplished now at both levels. The full meaning of the level four subunits D and D prime apparently is this, paraphrased here to reflect the meaning of the above suggested modification. D and D prime. Alma knows that whomsoever shall put his trust in God as he, Alma, does, shall be supported in their trials and their troubles and their afflictions as he has been and shall be lifted up at the last day, as he shall be. In short, the verse 28 skew is evident in Welch's above-noted chiastic analysis, and it is evident also in the Reynolds analysis, though only in the level 5 analysis and not in the level 4 analysis. The language that is the subject of the skew, and raise me up at the last day, is not part of the D prime or C prime elements of the level four analysis articulated by Reynolds. Rather, that phraseology is accounted for otherwise only in the subordinate level five structure. Recognizing its presence there and evaluating the Reynolds level four proposal in light of its presence may offer added insight into what Reynolds and Welch and others before them have offered in analyzing Alma chapter 36. In the Reynolds analysis of the entire concentric organization of Alma 36, Reynolds could have expanded each of the 17 key parallel semantic elements to include all of the ideas expressed by the quoted and paraphrased words and phrases within each of those elements, leaving out none of the thoughts expressed in any of them. The above iteration of the D and D prime element is one example of what could be accomplished. 
It is aided by recognition of the fact that the skew observed by Welch and others in the overall chapter-wide chiasm is important enough to appear there and perhaps should also be accounted for in level four of Reynolds' analysis and not solely in the subordinate level five. The verse three, my son, hear my words, skew. Perhaps what has been said above about the verse three skew is sufficient to show that it may be a special kind of skew, reiterating the verse one salutation of Alma to Helaman rather than being simply a diversion in the text. Reynolds refers to it as a repetition and expansion of the same appeal to Alma's son Helaman made in verse 1. That, of course, is accurate. But perhaps here it could be added that the first half of the text of verse 3 constitutes not only a reversion to the thought and wording of verse 1, a repeat of element A, but also perhaps the closing of an attention-promoting chiastic statement from father to son. Reading only the two and one-half verses of text, as if they first were spoken by Alma to his son, and then later recorded in fully crafted written form, the impression perhaps left by the first half of verse 3 is that it presents the closing phrase of a short A, B, B, C, D, C, A rhetorical structure, with two admonitions in B and B, parallel ideas in C and C, and a central idea in D, focused on God, closing with the repeated A element, perhaps giving Helaman an initial chiastic message. A, my son, give ear to my words, for I swear unto you. A prime, and now, O my son, Helaman, behold thou art in thy youth, and therefore I beseech of thee, that thou wilt hear my words and learn of me. B1, that inasmuch as ye shall keep the commandments of God, ye shall prosper in the land. B2, I would that ye should do as I have done in remembering the captivity of our fathers. C, for they were in bondage and none could deliver them. C prime, and he surely did deliver them in their afflictions. Central element D, except it was the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. In short, the repetition offered in verse 3 seems to close what at first might have seemed to Helaman, hearing rather than reading it, to be a meaningfully complete message in and of itself with the first half of verse 3 serving as the second element of an inclusio, based on my son, hear, my words, swear, and beseech. The verse 26, knowledge skew. The subject matter of the text, affected by the skew proposed by Wright in his elements 12 prime to 9 prime, concerns the concept of knowledge, appearing as a reversion to direct parallelism in his elements 10 prime and 11 prime of the second half of the text of verse 26, here replicating only his elements constituting and surrounding the skew. 12 prime, for because of the word which he has imparted unto me, verse 26, 10 prime, behold, many have been born of God, 
and have tasted as I have tasted, and have seen eye to eye as I have seen. Verse 26. 11 prime. Therefore they do know of these things of which I have spoken as I do know. 9 prime. And the knowledge which I have is of God. Verse 26. While Demke and Van Adder in 1997 and 2000 do depict a non-symmetrical, parallelistic pattern over the text of verse 26, they are the only analysts other than Wright to do so, Wright's proposed verse 26 skew may shed light on the proposal advanced by Reynolds. Reynolds proposes two interrelated ABC-CBA chiasms, one proposed for the text of verses 4 to 5 and one for the text of verse 26. The chiasm of verse 26 is reproduced here. A. For because of the word which he has imparted unto me, A prime, and the knowledge which I have is of God. B. Behold, many hath been born of God. B prime, therefore they do know of these things, of which I have spoken as I do know. C. And hath tasted as I have tasted. C prime, and hath seen eye to eye, as I have seen. Reynolds offers a thorough explanation of the correspondences between the A, B, and C elements of the proposed first 26 chiasm, shown above, and what he proposes as the corresponding A, B, and C elements of the proposed matching chiasm of verses 4 and 5, shown below. A, and I would not think that ye know of myself. A prime, not of any worthiness of myself. B, not of the temporal, but of the spiritual. B prime, but God hath by the mouth of his holy angel made these things known unto me. C, not of the carnal mind, but of God. C prime, now behold, I say unto you, if I had not been born of God, I, I should not have known of these things. Welch identifies the knowledge of God theme as a subject of correspondence between verses 4 and 26. The verse 26 skew proposed by Wright, shown in bold earlier above, when combined with the verse 4, verse 26 correspondence seen by Welch, shown below, suggests additional correspondences for verses 4 to 5 and 26, beyond those emphasized by Reynolds, albeit still consistent with Reynolds with underlining and bolding here added to Welch's proposal, such as to identify the additional correspondences. Element J, I know not of myself, but of God. Element J prime, the knowledge which I have is of God. Element K, if I had not been born of God. Element K prime, many have been born of God. Element L, I should not have known these things. Element L prime, they know of these things as I do know. Element M, but God has by the mouth of his holy angel made these things known unto me. Element M prime, because of the word which he has imparted unto me. The word and things of elements L, M, M prime and L prime of verses 5 and 26 in the above proposed pattern rely on the Egyptian and Hebrew word pair words things where the two occurrences of these things of elements L and M in the first plank verse 5 corresponds to the occurrence of word in element M prime and these things of element L prime in the second plank verse 26. 
The skew thus accounts for what otherwise formerly was a gap in the single-level analysis. The Reynolds multi-level analysis shown below is even more dramatic, for it not only fully accounts for the skew and the previously skipped text, but it also suggests correspondences not otherwise revealed in the single-level analysis. Yet, on the other hand, the single-level skew tends both to confirm the Reynolds analysis and perhaps also to suggest correspondences not emphasized in his multi-level analysis. Below is depicted the Reynolds analysis of verses 4 to 5 and 26, followed by a discussion of it. The context for the discussion requires a view of all of his rewriting of the text of verses 4, 5, and 26, his elements E and E prime. The rewriting by Reynolds is quoted below, with bold font here added to highlight phrases that may play a role in two skewed elements and one new chiasm newly proposed here, a chiasm for the text of verses 4, 5, and 26. Both the phrases in verse 26 and the phrases in the corresponding text in verse 5 are highlighted by retaining the italics used by Reynolds in his rewriting and by adding underlining here to emphasize additional correspondences of words and phrases. Element E, verse 4, A, And I would not that ye think that I know of myself. B, not of the temporal, but of the spiritual. C, not of the carnal mind, but of God. Verse 5, C prime, now behold, I say unto you, if I had not been born of God, I, I should not have known these things. B prime, but God hath by the mouth of his holy angel made these things known unto me. A, not of any worthiness of myself. E prime, verse 26, element A, for because of the word which he has imparted unto me, B, Behold, many hath been born of God. See, and hath tasted as I have tasted. See, prime, and hath seen eye to eye as I have seen. B prime, therefore they do know of these things, of which I have spoken as I do know. A prime, and the knowledge which I have is of God. By thus combining the results of efforts by Welch, Wright, and Reynolds, Perhaps the outcome suggests some minor refinements to the multi-level analysis Reynolds has offered. First and foremost is the appearance within his elements E and E prime of the Reynolds subordinate level analysis of the two chiasms ABC CBA in E and ABC CBA in E prime. The skews seem to confirm not only the upper level Reynolds analysis, that is, his elements E and E prime clearly relate to one another, but also the subordinate level analysis. Perhaps the skews may serve to identify words and phrases in the Reynolds analysis of subordinate levels within E and E prime, suggesting maybe that those correspondences should be identified in the Reynolds analysis. For example, note that in E C prime I and E B prime, Reynolds does not italicize the phrase these things as he does in E prime B. And feasibly, there is some justification for slight structural refinements of the Reynolds analysis, owing to attention that could be given to the verse 26 skew as proposed by Wright. First, perhaps the phrase these things in the word word, where they appear in EB prime and E prime A and in E prime B prime, could be italicized or underlined in the Reynolds analysis, given the linguistic interrelationship of the word pair. 
Second, maybe the words I and known in the I have known and I do know phrases, where they appear in E, C prime I and in E prime B prime, could be italicized or underlined to reflect the fact that those elements correspond to one another, referring to what Alma knows. Third, Reynolds already identifies the word word and the phrase imparted unto me in E prime A, verse 26, and yet the skew seems to suggest that italics or underlining could be used in EB prime, verse 5, where it is these things that Alma says are made known unto me. And conceivably, presentation of the rhetorical structure of element E, verses 4 to 5, could be enhanced to reflect the following correspondences set forth here in a format that expands upon that proposed in 2007 by Perry and serves as an alternative to what Reynolds offers. I retain Perry's bolding here and add underlining to his original underlining and impose it all on Reynolds's pattern. Element E, verse 4. And I would not that ye think that I know of myself, A, not of the temporal, B, but of the spiritual, A, not of the carnal mind, B, but of God, antithetical. Verse 5. A, now behold I say unto you, if I had not been born of God, B, I should not have known these things. A, but God has, by the mouth of his holy angel, B, made these things known unto me, not of any worthiness of myself. In the end, the above perhaps merely results in suggesting the existence of, and an opportunity to highlight and draw attention to, additional correspondences not previously discussed or depicted in the Reynolds analysis. The suggestion of additional correspondences arises because of the skew proposed by Wright and the correspondences noted by Welch. The suggestion inherent in the above enhanced analysis seems entirely consistent with the correspondences that Reynolds already notes, including the six negative correspondences founded on the six iterations of the word not, a repetition that is important in the Reynolds analysis. Additional potential skews proposed by Wright. Some other skews have been proposed for the chiasm of Alma 36. Each of them is very much akin to the type of skew evident in the following intermediate-length skewed chiastic text of Leviticus chapter 24. Note the skew in elements B prime and C prime, verse 23, bolded below in the second flank in the following pattern for Leviticus chapter 24, verses 13 to 23, as analyzed by Yehuda Ridai. Element A, the Lord said to Moses. Element A prime, as the Lord commanded Moses. Element B, bring out of the camp him who cursed. Element B prime, they brought him who had cursed out of the camp. Element C, stone him. Element C prime, and stoned him. Element D, say to the people of Israel. Element D prime, Moses spoke to the people of Israel. Element E, whoever curses his God blasphemes the Lord. Element E prime, I am the Lord your God. Element F, the sojourner and the native. Element F prime, the sojourner and the native. Element G, who kills a man. Element G prime, who kills a man. Element H, who kills a beast. Element H prime, who kills a beast. Element I, causes a disfigurement. Element I prime, he has been disfigured. 
and the central element J, fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. The skew appears at elements B prime and C prime, which are directly parallel with B and C. Each of the additional possible skews suggested by Wright for the Alma 36 chiasm and discussed below is similar to that of the Leviticus example above. Each of the skews involves only elements of the proposed chiasm that are immediately adjacent to one another. The following can be said regarding other potential skews identified by Wright. At this point in the written text, the discussion of three skews proposed by Wright gets very detailed and can only be understood by reading the visual representations on the printed page. Therefore, I summarize here briefly what is set forth on pages 222 through 230 of the printed article. Wright proposes a skew for verses 23, 26, and 19b. The proposed verse 23 skew rests on a negative correspondence between the phrase, and I stood upon my feet, of verse 23, and the phrase, I fell to the earth, of verse 10. When the Reynolds analysis is modified slightly to account for the proposed verse 23 skew by Wright, the modification retains and enhances the original Reynolds proposal and recognizes the verse 23 skew proposed by Wright, recognizing also a distant ABBA chiasm on the phrases A stood up, B fell to the earth, B prime fell to the earth, and A prime stood upon. The verse 26 skew proposed by Wright gives grounds to reconcile the proposals of Reynolds, Perry, and Wright, and retain all of the correspondences seen by all three analysts. Recognition of the verse 26 skew offered by Wright, however, allows additional emphasis on subordinate elements, showing a correspondence between things and words, an Egyptian and Hebrew word pair. And a proposed skew at verse 19b seems to be very weak. It is analyzed briefly on pages 229 and 230. Why so many potential skews? One might ask why so many skews can be proposed in any suggested chiasm for Alma 36. Are any of them valid? Do the skews here advanced, if valid, alone disqualify the text as chiastic? For example, is Welch's proposal of Deuteronomy 18 and 20 as a chiastic text, as depicted earlier, so replete with skews that the proposal of a chiasm should be rejected altogether? Where does one draw the line? At what point does the appearance of skews and asymmetry disqualify a text as chiastic? The answer may be both simple and complex. Simply put, relevant commentary generally agrees that the mere presence of skews and the resulting manifestation of asymmetry in texts proposed to be chiastic do not defeat the possibility that the texts are chiastic. Indeed, as mentioned earlier, chiastic texts may well require asymmetry but the question may nevertheless be one of degree. At what point does the sheer number of skews overwhelm the pattern and defeat it? And it may well also be a question of purpose or motive. Did ancient authors generally, and did Alma specifically, include or allow one or more or even many skews seeking to accomplish a purpose? If so, what purpose or purposes? This perhaps cannot be known for sure, of course. But two major possibilities have been advanced by others. One, to draw attention to a portion of the text where it interrupts mirror symmetry. And two, to avoid perfect symmetry altogether. 
The former of these two may be self-defeating when the number of skews or the ratio of skews to length of text makes the skews seem ineffectual. But the latter of these two purposes may not be self-defeating, but rather simply more effectual in accomplishing a rhetorical goal. Perhaps the aversion to symmetry, symmetrophobia, is better manifest in greater numbers, perhaps as an unmeasurable ratio of skews to length of text, immune from calculation. In any event, whether a text is chiastic depends not on whether skews appear or can be discerned. This seems clear from the input from others on the issue, for the presence of a chiastic structure for a text depends on the definition of chiasmus in the first place. Symmetry is not essential to the existence of a chiasm. It surely is a characteristic of many, perhaps most, chiasms that have been identified. Its near ubiquity surely makes it seem like symmetry is essential. After all, symmetry generally results from the operation of the two defining features of chiasmus, one, repetition, and two, reversal in the sequence of the repeated elements. But a text may be chiastic even if asymmetry exists in its structure, perhaps even if it abounds. No fewer than 19 analysts have, over the years, identified what they variously refer to as laws, characteristics, rules, criteria, requirements, constraints, guidelines, controls, safeguards, axioms, assumptions, errors, and fallacies, useful in the identification and evaluation of texts as chiastic or not. Those analysts are Niels Wilhelm Lund, 1942, Paul Gechter, 1965, Joanna Dewey, 1973 and 1980, David J. Clark, 1975, R. Allen Culpepper, 1981, David Noel Friedman, 1981, Wilfred G. E. Watson, 1981, John W. Welch, 1981, 1989, and 1995, Craig Blomberg, 1989, George Michael Butterworth, 1992, John Breck, 1994, Ian H. Thompson, 1995, Mark J. Boda, 1996, Bernard M. Levinson, 1997, Wayne Brower, 1999 and 2000, David P. Wright, 2004, Stephen R. Scott, 2010, James E. Patrick, 2016, and Jonathan P. Burnside, 2017. The range of their statements about symmetry and asymmetry extends from, on the one hand, almost perfect skepticism that an asymmetrical text can also be chiastic to, on the other hand, acceptance of the notion that asymmetry is not only the norm in chiastic texts, but even required, even to the point of allowing it to appear abundantly in a text that at the same time also is accepted as chiastic. Perhaps Thompson, in his 1995 text, Chiasmus in the Pauline Letters, best exemplifies the skeptical view whereby, upon reviewing what he refers to as Welch's 1981 plea for objectivity in the identification of chiasmus, Thompson suggests, quote, three requirements, without the fulfillment of which an alleged pattern could not be accepted as chiastic, end quote. Those three requirements, he says, are, one, the chiasmus will be present in the text as it stands and will not require unsupported textual emendation in order to recover it. Two, the symmetrical elements will be present in precisely inverted order. And three, the chiasmus will begin and end at a reasonable point. Of these three requirements, Thompson elucidates, quote, Nothing, perhaps, needs to be said about the first of these, but the second is a little more problematical. 
Many examples of chiasmus are suggested in which there is a greater or smaller degree of perturbation in the order of the elements in the second half. However, if any disturbance at all in the order of the elements is allowed, the problem becomes that of deciding at what point a perturbation becomes so severe that the pattern fails as a chiasmus. In the present atmosphere, this is a case for erring, if any way, on the side of caution in order to exclude doubtful structures. End quote. Yet Thompson himself also points out that asymmetries may well be accepted as a, quote, paradoxical presence, end quote, in a text, otherwise acceptable as chiastic. Perhaps the best examples of acceptance of asymmetry in proposed chiasms are those quoted above in this present paper, in the section titled, What is Said Generally About Skews in Chiastic Asymmetry? Moreover, insofar as whether the numerical extent of skews present in a text affects whether the text can still be accepted as chiastic, it can be noted that O'Connell identifies four skews in his proposed chiasm for Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 1 to 26. And Yehuda Radai identified five skews in the chiasm he proposed for the book of Esther, two in the book of Jonah, three in the book of Second Samuel, and eight in the book of Genesis. Those seem to be more significant numbers than the one or two that most analysts identify in Alma 36, as noted above under the heading, What Skews Have Been Proposed in the Past for Alma 36? It should be noted that of the six potential skews that have been proposed over the years by various analysts of Alma 36, only one analyst proposes three skews in the chapter, right in 1986 in verses 19, 23, and 26. And all the others propose either two skews or only one skew. Two skews by Welch in 1991 in verses 3 and 28, Reynolds in 2019 and 2020 in verses 3 and 28, and one skew by Welch in 1988 in verse 3, Perry in 1992 and 2007 in verse 3, Lindsay in 1999 and 2016 in verse 28, Welch and Welch in 1999 in verse 28, Demke and Venatter in 2000 at verses 23 through 26, and Bent in 2010 in verse 28. While this present paper discusses these six potential skews, I note the following three points. One, one skew appears to be self-defeating, Wright's proposed Harrowamp skew of verse 19b. Two, of the remaining five potential skews, the one proposed for the text of verse 3 is not truly a reversion to parallelism, but instead a reiteration of a salutation appearing in the first half of the text, noted by Welch, Reynolds, and Perry, treated here as a special sort of skew. And three, one skew proposed for the text of verses 23 to 26 is an outlier proposed only by Demke and Venatter in 2000. The verse 28 skew is the one skew that is depicted as such most commonly, noted by Welch, Reynolds, Lindsay, and Bent. Verses 3 and 28 are the two skews that are most commonly advanced by the analysts, and the ones that seem most notably accountable for meaningful asymmetry in the text. Importantly, in composing his text as a chiasm, as various modern-day analysts propose, Alma was not limited to composing the text using only the words and phrases that appear in the labels assigned by modern-day analysts. Rather, Alma wrote all of the words that we have in his text. Thus, if there is a chiastic pattern in Alma's text, it likely should be discerned in light of all of the text, not just words and phrases selected by the modern analyst.
When analysts like Welch, Perry, Reynolds, and others quote the full text of chapter 36 and discern and depict rhetorical structures in it, they are on safer ground than if they were either to pick and choose words and phrases or characterize blocks of text as representing ideas that potentially they read into rather than read out of the text. If an analyst accounts for all of the text that Alma has given us and proposes a full chapter chiasm forming either a perfect reversal or a skewed reversal in a sequence of repeated elements, only then is the analyst in a position to depict lower-level, subordinate-level patterns within those blocks of text. Some observations about Deuteronomy chapter 8 and Alma chapter 36. A chiasm proposed in 1990 by the late Robert H. O'Connell for the text of Deuteronomy chapter 8, together with its skew and message, invites inquiry into the possibility of a relationship between Deuteronomy chapter 8 and Alma chapter 36. Perhaps chiastic analysis of Alma chapter 36 may well be enhanced by comparing its message and structure to that of Deuteronomy chapter 8. The earlier text may possibly have been a model for at least a portion of the wording, message, structure, and ideas of Alma chapter 36, including the occurrence of skews in the proposed single-level chiastic structure of each respective text. O'Connell analyzed the asymmetrical concentric structure of Deuteronomy chapter 8, verses 1 to 20, adding to and revising a concentric analysis that in 1963 had first been proposed by Norbert Lofink. A few similarities in the ideas expressed in Deuteronomy 8 and Alma 36. The seemingly similar characteristics of the messages and ideas of both the Deuteronomy 8 text and the Alma 36 text are as follows. 1. Both offer repeated positive admonitions to keep the commandments. Quote, All the commandments which I command thee this day shall ye observe to do, that ye may live and multiply, and go in and possess the land which the Lord swear unto your fathers. End quote. Deuteronomy 8.1. Keep the commandments. End quote. Alma 36.1. Quote, keep the commandments. End quote. Alma 36.30. Second, both state a motive for obedience, namely, prosperity in the land. It is not our own power or the might of our own hand that brings prosperity, Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 17, but it is the Lord who brings it inasmuch as we keep and do not forget to keep his commandments, Deuteronomy 8, 1, 11, and 19. See also Alma 36, 1, and 30, quote, Inasmuch as ye shall keep the commandments of God, ye shall prosper in the land, end quote, in both verse 1 and verse 30. Third, both require remembrance of the wilderness period of the fathers, quote, And thou shalt remember all the way which the Lord thy God led thee these forty years in the wilderness, to humble thee and to prove thee, to know what was in thine heart, whether thou wouldest keep his commandments or no, end quote. Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 2. Quote, Remembering the captivity of our fathers, end quote. Alma chapter 36, verse 2. Fourth, both refer to knowledge or lack of knowledge. See Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3a and verse 16a, and Alma chapter 36, verses 4, 5, 26, 28, and 30. Fifth, both refer to the Lord's chastening of his people or his sons. Deuteronomy 8, 5 and Alma 36, 6-16. 6. 
Both refer to the author's warning not to forget the Lord's commandments, identifying the consequences of disobedience to the commandments. It leads to death and banishment. Deuteronomy chapter 8 verse 19 and Alma chapter 36 verse 30. Quote, Beware that thou forget not the Lord thy God in not keeping his commandments and his judgments and his statutes, which I command thee this day. End quote. Deuteronomy 8.11. See also Alma 36.30. Quote, Inasmuch as ye will not keep the commandments of God, ye shall be cut off from his presence. End quote. Seventh, both refer to the deliverance of the Israelites from the bondage of Egypt. Deuteronomy 8.2 and 14. Alma 36.2.28 and 29. And eighth, perhaps especially importantly, the center of Deuteronomy 8 in verses 7 to 9 and the center of Alma 36 in verses 17 to 18 refer to the Lord's rich blessings. The reference to olive trees in verse 8 in the central chiastic element of Deuteronomy 8 possibly is presciently symbolic of the place of atoning sacrifice, the Garden of Gethsemane, emblematic of what one also gleans from the chiastic centerpiece of Alma 36 at verses 17 to 18. A few similarities in the proposed structures of Deuteronomy 8 and Alma 36. In addition to correspondences in themes of Deuteronomy 8 and Alma 36, the proposed structure of at least a portion of the text of Alma 36 seems to reflect some of the structure of Deuteronomy 8. Emphasized here are three important similarities. First, an inclusio opens and closes Deuteronomy 8, with element A, verse 1, and element A prime, verse 20, the extreme verses, reciting the injunction to be obedient to the Lord's commandments, verse 1, and issuing a warning not to be disobedient, verse 20, mentioning in those extremes the resulting promised prosperity in the land as sworn to the patriarchs, verse 1, and the destruction that accompanies disobedience, verse 20, just as in Alma 36, 1 and 30. Second, the inclusio is followed, element B, verses 2 to 3, by the command to remember the divine guidance through the desert, out from the bondage of Egypt, corresponding to the admonition to Israel to not forget that deliverance, element D prime, in verses 14 to 16, just as in Alma 36, 2 and 29. And third, the centerpiece of Deuteronomy 8 speaks of the blessings of the Lord God to Israel, verses 7 to 9, just as the centerpiece of Alma 36 speaks of the blessings of the Lord Jesus to Alma, verses 17 to 18. It may thus seem reasonable to suggest that the structure of Deuteronomy 8 perhaps might have played a role in at least some of Alma's effort to structure the text of his testimony as set forth for us in Alma 36. Both texts focus in the beginning on keeping commandments and warn at the end of the consequences of not keeping the commandments, and both offer a focus at the middle of their text on a blessing from the Lord. In addition, the chiastic structure of Deuteronomy chapter 8 apparently features two skews as analyzed by O'Connell, and one of them is akin to the Alma chapter 36 verse 28 knowledge skew. The printed version of this paper presents the entirety of the text of Deuteronomy chapter 8 as analyzed as a chiasm by O'Connell. I will here read the matching elements one after the other, drawing from the beginning of chapter 8 and the end of chapter 8 and working towards the middle as analyzed by O'Connell. The text of verse 1 accounts for elements A and B 
and those elements are answered in verses 19 and 20 by an ABBA chiasm. Element A of verse 1, All the commandments which I command thee this day shall ye observe to do. Verse 1a. Element B, That ye may live and multiply and go in and possess the land. Verse 1b. Elements A prime, B prime, B double prime, and A double prime at the end of the chiasm are as follows. A prime. And it shall be, if thou do at all forget the Lord thy God, and walk after other gods, and serve them, and worship them. Verse 19a. B prime. I testify against you this day, that ye shall surely perish. B double prime. As the nations which the Lord destroyeth before your face, so shall ye perish. Verse 20a. And element A double prime. Because ye would not be obedient unto the voice of the Lord your God. Verse 20b. Element C. Which the Lord swear unto your fathers. Verse 1b. Element C prime. That he may establish his covenant which he swear unto thy fathers as it is this day. Verse 18b. Element D. And thou shalt remember all the way which the Lord thy God led thee these forty years in the wilderness. Verse 2a. Element D prime. But thou shalt remember the Lord thy God, for it is he that giveth thee power to get wealth. Verse 18a. Element E. To humble thee and to prove thee. Verse 2b. Element E prime. That he might humble thee and that he might prove thee. Verse 16b. Element F. To know what was in thine heart. Verse 2b. Element F prime. And thou say in thine heart, my power and the might of mine hand hath gotten me this wealth. Verse 17. Element G. And he humbled thee and suffered thee to hunger and fed thee with manna, which thou knowest not, neither did thy fathers know. Verse 3a. Element G prime, who fed thee in the wilderness with manna, which thy fathers knew not. Verse 16a. Element H, that he might make thee know that man doth not live by bread only, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of the Lord doth man live. Verse 3b. Element H prime, to do thee good at thy latter end. Verse 16b. Element I, thy raiment waxed not old upon thee, Neither did thy foot swell these forty years. Verse 4. Element I prime, which brought thee forth out of the land of Egypt, from the house of bondage, who led thee through that great and terrible wilderness, wherein were fiery serpents and scorpions and drought, where there was no water, who brought thee forth water out of the rock of flint. Verses 14b to 15. Element J. Thou shalt also consider in thine heart that as a man chasteneth his son, so the Lord thy God chasteneth thee. Verse 5. Element J prime. Lest when thou hast eaten and art full and hast built goodly houses and dwelt therein, and when thy herds and thy flocks multiply and thy silver and thy gold is multiplied and all that thou hast is multiplied, then thine heart be lifted up and thou forget the Lord thy God. Verses 12 to 14a. Element K. Therefore thou shalt keep the commandments of the Lord thy God to walk in his ways and to fear him. Verse 6. Element K prime. 
Beware that thou forget not the Lord thy God in not keeping his commandments and his judgments and his statutes, which I command thee this day. Verse 11. The central element L. For the Lord thy God bringeth thee into a good land. Verse 7a. A land of brooks, of water, of fountains and depths that spring out of valleys and hills. A land of wheat and barley and vines and fig trees and pomegranates. A land of oil, olive, and honey, a land wherein thou shalt eat bread without scarceness, thou shalt not lack anything in it, a land whose stones are iron, and out of whose hills thou mayest dig brass, verses 7b to 9, and central element L prime, when thou hast eaten and art full, then thou shalt bless the Lord thy God for the good land which he hath given thee, verse 10. While O'Connell promises to identify the, quote, possible rhetorical motivations for the asymmetrical distribution of matched tiers, end quote, in elements G prime, E prime, and F prime of his proposal, he eventually offers only the following, which seems limited to identifying merely an aesthetic purpose or motivation, at best perhaps a purpose solely to enhance the reader's or listener's rhetorical interest in the text, quote, Although the author could have adhered to a strictly symmetrical arrangement, it seems that these inner tiers alternate positions and rhetorical roles to enhance rhetorical interest in the palistrophe. Thus, it would appear that the tension which results from architectural and rhetorical arrangements playing off against one another is the product of artifice. End quote. Over the years, single-level analyses of Alma 36 have, for the most part, identified words, phrases, and rhetorical function of various elements in the proposed chiasm of the chapter. So, too, with O'Connell's single-level analysis of Deuteronomy chapter 8, verses 1 to 20. He supplies two analyses, and the second of them is an abbreviated, vocabulary-based analysis founded on selected words and phrases quoted from the text. In his second analysis, quoted below, he features two observations concerning correspondences in the rhetorical function of his elements H and H prime, and his elements I and I prime. O'Connell states that his elements H and H prime relate to one another not by, quote, correspondence in shared vocabulary, end quote, but, quote, by virtue of the fact that both comprise purpose clauses which focus on Israel's covenant welfare, end quote. And he states that his elements I and I prime, quote, feature multiple evidences of Yahweh's provision of covenant benefits, end quote. His abbreviated vocabulary-based proposal here follows. Here again, English wording is substituted for O'Connell's original. I will here read the first element and the last element, and then proceed with the second and the second to last elements, and continue on to the middle. Element A, observe, meaning to obey God's commandments, verse 1. Element A prime, walk after other gods and serve them and worship them, disobedience to God, verse 19. And A double prime, obedient unto the voice of the Lord, verse 20b. Element B, verse 1, live, the result of obedience to God's commandments. Element B prime, verse 19, ye shall surely perish, the result of disobedience to God's commandments. Element B double prime, so shall ye perish, the result of disobedience to God's commandments. Verse 20a. 
Element C, swear unto your fathers, verse 1. Element C prime, swear unto thy fathers, verse 18b. Element D, shalt remember which the Lord thy God, verse 2a. Element D prime, shalt remember the Lord thy God, verse 18. Element E, to humble thee and to prove thee, verse 2c. Element E prime, that he might humble thee and that he might prove thee, verse 13b. Element F, in thine heart, verse 2. Element F prime, in thine heart, verse 17. Element G, fed thee with manna, neither did thy fathers know, verse 3. Element G prime, fed thee with manna, which thy fathers knew not, verse 16. Element H, quote, purpose of humbling, to teach Yahweh is provider, verse 3b. Element H prime, Quote, purpose of humbling and testing to benefit Israel, end quote. Verse 16b. Element I, Yahweh provides apparel and health, verse 4. Element I prime, Yahweh provides protection and water in the wilderness, verses 14b to 15b. Element J, in thine heart, verse 5. Element J prime, thine heart, verse 14. Element K, keep the commandments, verse 6. Element K prime, not keeping his commandments, verse 11. Element L, a good land, verse 7a. Element L prime, the good land, verse 10. And the central element M is the axis at verses 7b to 9. Yet notwithstanding the correspondences O'Connell identifies between and among elements of his proposal, whether they be elements of the full text, elements consisting of selected words and phrases, or elements showing rhetorical correspondences, some amount of the text is not accounted for in his analyses, namely, for one example, text appearing in verses 12 to 13 between his elements K prime and L prime. In short, O'Connell does not account for all of the words and phrases of Deuteronomy chapter 8 in his analyses. Words and phrases that are not accounted for in parts of analyzed texts generally and that therefore lack correspondence with text elsewhere in those texts, are referred to by Welch as mavericks. They are words and phrases that do not contribute to the chiastic pattern discerned, but they may be relevant in a multi-level analysis, which O'Connell does identify in his study, reflecting the interesting partially symmetrical pattern of D-E-F-G-H-I-I-G-E-H-F-D in verses 2 to 4 and 14 to 18. For purposes of discussion, in addition to the unaccounted-for text of verses 12 to 13 mentioned above, the sum of all text not accounted for by O'Connell consists of the following. 1. The phrase, led thee in the wilderness, in verse 2b, and the phrase, led thee through that wilderness, in verse 15, are not accounted for. Those phrases appear, respectively, between O'Connell's elements D and E, and within his element I, which could be considered to be a skewed appearance when included in the single-level analysis. 2. The two appearances of the phrase, these 40 years, in verses 2 and 4, seemingly unanswered in the second half of the chapter, are not accounted for. Perhaps, therefore, this omission is indicative of the need for multi-level analysis of verses 2 to 4, an analysis that might account for those time signals. 3. 
The seemingly unanswered additional appearance of the phrase humbled thee in verse 3a, separate from the already answered appearances of that phrase in verses 2 and 16b, is not accounted for, perhaps suggesting the need for multi-level analysis of the text of verse 16b. And four, the two appearances of the phrase, quote, thou hast eaten and art full, end quote, appearing in verses 10 and 12, both in the second half of the chapter, are not accounted for and apparently do not answer any similar phrases appearing in the first half of the chapter, suggesting perhaps that verses 10 and 12 might well manifest textual structures at other rhetorical levels. All of these might be considered to result in skews in the chiasm of the chapter when analyzed as a single-level chiasm. And yet, perhaps, these simply suggest the need to analyze the chiasm of Deuteronomy chapter 8 not solely as a single-level pattern, but is one that actually manifests multiple subordinate levels of rhetorical structure, to which the skewed text belongs. Perhaps chapter 8 of the book of Deuteronomy is even more complex than O'Connell's analysis reveals. O'Connell does note that, quote, where there are aberrations from an otherwise consistent, symmetrical, concentric structure, end quote, there may be other rhetorical functions at work, and he says that they are made more apparent, quote, when we consider the rhetorical function of each tier within the larger semantic units which comprise the chapter, end quote. He does not supply further discussion of the point, though he does state the following, quote, Concentricity furnishes the architectural framework for Deuteronomy chapter 8, and, to some extent, influences its rhetorical structure. This is not consistently the case, however, for, as Lofink has accurately stated, there are different systems of order throughout the text which stand in tension with the formal structure, end quote. The above quoted statement clearly seems to portend that more robust multi-level analysis of the chapter might be appropriate. The skews, asymmetries, and chiastic structures of Deuteronomy 8 and Alma 36. We have seen so far that skews producing asymmetry may be apparent within the one-level chiastic analyses of the Deuteronomy 8 and Alma 36 texts. This may be so for one of two reasons. Either analysis by modern analysts is incomplete, suggesting the need for more detailed analysis to account for structures to be discerned at subordinate levels, a need apparently met by the analysis exemplified by Reynolds in his 2019 chapter and 2020 article. Or, perhaps the skews themselves, appearing in the text as originally written, were intentionally included in the author's text, either in order to draw attention to the ideas or in order to avoid perfect symmetry. In either case, though, perhaps skews appearing in a chiastic text, be it Deuteronomy chapter 8 or Alma 36, probably should be expressly accounted for in any analysis of the text, be it single-level analysis or multi-level analysis. The Proposed Chiastic Centrality of Word and Thought Importantly, in referring to Alma 36, Welch has noted that mind caught hold upon the thought is the precise pivot point of the chapter. It is noted above that the preeminence of the word is central both to Deuteronomy 8 and to Alma 36. What Welch also previously has observed should also be noted. Quote, Identical ideas are often distributed in the extremes and at the center of the system, and nowhere else in the system, end quote. This observed feature possibly is manifest by the appearance of the word thought in Alma 36.18 at the center, and the appearance of words in 36.1 at the beginning of the chapter, and word in 36.30 at the end of the chapter. 
that mind, thought, and words are intimately related and thus appropriately appear both in the center of Alma 36 and at its extremes is supported by a number of evidences. For example, it may be relevant also that the note accompanying the appearance of the word thoughts in the New English translation of Proverbs 1.23 states the following concerning the relationship between thoughts, words, and mind. Quote, Hebrew, my spirit. The term spirit, ruach, functions as a metonymy of association, equals to spirit, equals to thoughts, as indicated by the parallelism with my words, devachai. The noun, ruach, spirit, can have a cognitive nuance, that is, spirit of wisdom, as in Exodus 28.3 and Deuteronomy 34.9. It is used metonymically for words, Job 20, verse 3, and mind, Isaiah 40.13, Ezekiel 11.5, Ezekiel 20.32, 1 Chronicles 28.12, and C. Brown Driver Briggs Hebrew English Lexicon at entry number 925 under the word Ruach. The spirit of wisdom produces skill and capacity necessary for success, Isaiah 11.2 and John 7.37-39. End of quote. Perhaps the seeming relationship of the terms thought, word and words as they appear in verses 1, 18, and 30 in Alma chapter 36 may be reflected in the relationship of those terms as they appear also in Psalm 56, 5, quote, Every day they rest my words. All their thoughts are against me for evil, end quote. So too, perhaps, as they appear in Deuteronomy 15, 9, where instead of choosing the English word word for debar, the King James Version translators rendered it as a thought. Moreover, as a proposed centerpiece for Alma 36, the phrase, quote, my mind caught hold upon this thought, end quote, employs the verb caught hold. That phrase appears only two other times in the Book of Mormon, once in Nephi's quotation of Lehi's account and once in Nephi's summary of Lehi's account of the dream Lehi had about people catching hold of the word of God, the word being symbolized in that dream as, quote, the rod of iron, end quote. 1 Nephi 8, 24, and 30. Thus, meaningful correspondence apparently exists between and among the thought that is caught hold of in Alma 36, 18, and the words of 36, 1, element A, and the word of 36, 30, element A prime. This correspondence is especially reinforced by the observations made by Matthew L. Bowen, who notes that Nephi unambiguously asserts, quote, that the word of God is a rod, and that, quote, the Egyptian word medu means not only a staff or rod, but also to speak a word. Bowen similarly notes that, quote, the Egyptian word medu means not only a staff or rod, but also to speak a word. The derived word medit or metet, probably pronounced mate in Lehi's day, was common in the Egyptian dialect of that time and would have sounded very much like a common Hebrew word for rod or staff, mate. It is also very interesting that the expression medu nature was a technical term for a divine revelation, literally the word of God or divine decree. The phrase medu nature also denoted sacred writings, what we would call scriptures, as well as the written characters or script, in which these sacred writings were written. As a footnote here for the audio version of this paper, 
I express gratitude to Robert F. Smith for supplying the standard pronunciations used by Egyptologists for the Egyptian words quoted in the prior paragraph. End of footnote. Cautionary Notes Robert F. Smith cautions, quote, Sometimes apparent skews are merely a failure of the reader to back off a bit from the surface in order to see a different sort of grouping of elements. For example, in Deuteronomy 8, might we combine EFG and GEF rather than dividing them up into three discrete units? End quote. This is true both of Deuteronomy 8 and perhaps any other proposed chiastic text where analysis discerns a skew. The tension between combining two or more proposed elements of a proposed chiasm into one element exists because of the tension between choosing headings or labels for larger swaths of text, ignoring some swaths of text and fashioning the headings or labels and accounting for all of the text being analyzed. Another cautionary note concerns whether Alma 36 is indeed a chiastic text. As mentioned previously, the scope of this present article does not include addressing the question whether Alma 36 is chiastic. The article merely proceeds on the assumption it is. That issue has been addressed by numerous proponents and critics over the years. There is a remarkable consistency in analysts' proposals concerning the basic elements of the proposed Alma 36 chiasm, even in light of refinements in the proposals and especially in light of the levels analysis proposed by Welch, Reynolds, and others. Probably the most prominent biblical example of a chiastic pattern over a text of about the same length as that of Alma 36 is one proposed for Ezekiel 20, verses 3 to 31, by Leslie C. Allen. Allen proposes an extensive chiasm of A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, I, I, H, G, F, E, D, C, B, A over those 29 verses. Allen's proposal is further discussed by the author in the recent volume on chiasmus titled Chiasmus, the State of the Art, published by BYU Studies Quarterly and Book of Mormon Central. Similar chiastic proposals that include skews are set forth in the appendix to the article I am reading. Conclusions This article suggests that asymmetry, symmetrophobia, and skews may at times be relevant to chiastic analysis generally and Valma 36 specifically. One might ask, why would authors purposefully interpose a skew in what otherwise would be a chiastic text featuring perfect mirror symmetry? The answer suggested by a number of scholars is twofold. One, avoiding literary perfection, and two, attracting a reader's or listener's attention. One might also ask, does a chiastic text lose its character as chiastic once it reaches a certain threshold of asymmetry? That is, where is the balance between asymmetry and repetition, between symmetry and seeming chaos? Large-scale chiasms easily survive translation, but shorter texts are subject to question. Where does an analyst draw the line? The concepts of asymmetry and skews may be helpful in confirming and perhaps sometimes suggesting refinements to the rhetorical structures discerned in multi-level chiastic analysis of Alma chapter 36. Some skews previously identified suggest that multi-level analysis of Alma 36 may benefit from awareness of skews. Some features of the reported chiasm and skew recognized in the single-level analysis of the text of Deuteronomy 8, which itself may noticeably be related to one of the observed skews in a single-level analysis of Alma 36, 
may suggest that the former may have served as part of the inspiration for some of the message, wording, and structure of the latter, as may be evidenced by other textual and structural similarities between the two texts. My impression of the rhetorical beauties of Alma 36 is that it is amenable to more than one believable type of chiastic analysis. It clearly manifests a structure as a large-scale chiasm based on the symmetrical correspondence of words and phrases, with a verse 28 skew as exemplified by Welch and Welch in 1999 and by John Welch and others in earlier years. Perhaps that one-level set of correspondences may be enhanced by recognition both of the verse 3 skew and of both the centrally located emphasis on the redeeming power of Christ's atoning sacrifice and also on the central role of word and thought as introduced by Welch and discussed more fully earlier. The chapter manifestly reflects a good measure of chiastic sophistication, with additional rhetorical structures evident on multiple levels, as analyzed most recently by Reynolds and by some others before him, including Welch, Tensmeyer, Crowell, Perry, Dempke and Van Adder, and Lindsay. The chiastic form of the chapter, based on themes or ideas, as shown by various analysts, began in 1969 when Welch made his first discovery, and has been confirmed and refined over the years by him and others. The chapter is a rich resource of inspiration about the centrality of Christ in the life and conversion story of Alma, as well as in our own spiritual life and our own quest for forgiveness and salvation. This has been a recording of Asymmetry in Chiasms, with a note about Deuteronomy 8 and Alma 36, by Stephen Kent Ehat, published in Interpreter, a Journal of Latter-day Saint Faith and Scholarship, Volume 59, 2023, read by Stephen Kent Ehat. This audio recording is copyrighted under a Creative Commons license and may be freely distributed if it remains unchanged. The journal and its website are credited and is for non-commercial use. A printed version of this and many other articles can be found at journal.interpreterfoundation.org. More information about the Interpreter Foundation, along with a wide array of additional resources, can be found at interpreterfoundation.org.